this is going to get cut. Yeah, it's definitely getting cut. I hope so, Dad. I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Trades Planning, a podcast that tries to make sense of international trade, business, and expat life without putting you to sleep. On today's episode, we'll explore the continued fallout from geopolitical tensions in Taiwan and China, as well as seeing the effects of tariffs, remember those, and why falling commodities prices may not be so great for developing countries. And later on, we will be speaking with Dmitry Gorazubinsky of Explain Trade about how he's seen the discussion around trade change over the past decade, his advice for young people, and what it's like being from New Zealand, or whatever. And as always, we'll have the usual listener feedback and the news roundup. So without further ado... Let's get into it. Love, love. <laughs> well, everybody, welcome to episode 37. This, you'll be happy to know or not, is the atomic number of rubidium, the explosive red element, which is named after former U.S. Treasury Secretary Robert Rubin. <laughs> Actually, no, the name is derived from the Latin rubidius, meaning deepest red. Uh, rubidium is a soft, very soft, whitish gray metal in the alkali metal group, and um, we've already used up our Bojo references a couple episodes back, so I don't know where to go with this. But 37 is also the age at which Rob stopped using a typewriter. <laughs> I have used a typewriter, actually, since you were 37. And uh, as <laughs> it's also the average number of references to Staten Island uh, that I make per episode, which is more than Rob mentions his home state of Iowa. Hashtag go Jayhawks. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, Jayhawks obviously is Kansas, and I'm not from Iowa. And 37, <laughs> I messed that up. 37 on purpose used to be the age of Artie, but now he's 40 <laughs> and still making movie references <laughs> to movies that were still around before I was born. But anyway, again, like I said, let's neither not, here nor there. Let's not. <laughs> Listeners will be very excited this episode to know that I'm not 37. But also, more importantly, that this episode marks two years since the start of trade planning. So we started this, which is crazy, even just saying these words. We started this not knowing what it would become. And we've been, I guess, on a personal level, we're incredibly grateful for the listeners, of course, but also the amazing words, whether they be in person, email, or social media over the past two years. I think the podcast has it's given us a chance to really learn from some incredibly smart people. Uh, and hopefully add a little bit something different to the discussions happening around us. And we're really delighted and amazed that our listenership keeps growing, which again, it's weird even saying that. And sorry to be too self-effacing, but uh, I for one have learned a lot, especially, this is mainly from Michelle, that Bo Burnham is a thing. And in fact, one of my favorite things I've learned over the past two years, forget AI, forget the future of work, forget dominoes. It's really all about Bo Burnham. What about you, Rob? I think, as I told you two years ago, this is a bad idea. Mm, I have a t-shirt. I, about I'm, I'm still kind of going with it, <laughs> but I'm still not sure it's a good idea. No, it's been really fun. It's super fun also to have a chance to talk to people, as you say, to get feedback. People are really listening, which is weird. Uh, when we talked to Bryce Bashik the other day, he mentioned he'd listened to some episodes. We were like, that is cool. No, no. He mentioned he's a listener. He's a listener. Yeah. So from- we were kind of blown away by that. Yeah. So I think we are adding something to the to the dialogue. We don't know in what direction we're adding it. It's really an organic process is what you mean to say. I think we're uniters, not dividers. I think what's important is focusing on the goals and how we achieve them in a really sustainable way and focusing on results on the ground. I think what we need to really realize is... What we need to do is bring back the UN word of the day because people have told me that's that's missing. <laughs> I think 
So yeah, two years. Yeah. I think we're going to hit our stride soon. <laughs> we're, just, we're just warming up is what he means. Folks. I think we're, I think we're going to really, I think we're going to get the hang of this pretty soon. I know it's still quite difficult. You know how to help us on our way, folks. You can leave us a review on, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. As I keep telling you, every episode, they help and we know you are listening. You got time to punch in those Domino's orders online. You got time to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and listen to us anywhere you get your podcasts at least for the foreseeable future. So we've gotten for, so we've gotten two years down the line. I think we've got at least a couple more months of this to go. What do you think? I think Taylor Swift isn't listening anymore, which is kind of an issue for that's, me. That's fine because Jake Gyllenhaal is. <laughs> and listeners will know why we're team Jake. We are team everybody. That's yeah. the thing about us. We are a, we're inclusive. Equal opportunity podcast. <laughs> How do we get out of this segment, Artie? <laughs> Well then, we'll get right into this episode's What Went Wrong This Week segment. To start off, the U.S. is negotiating a not-trade agreement with Taiwan, which is a very big non-official trading partner, wink wink. So Taiwan and U.S. trade is worth over $100 billion, and it makes it the ninth largest trading partner, if you like, if that was a really an official trading partner, that is. And that's even though the U.S. runs a one-China policy, as I mentioned, which means it can't officially sign treaties with Taiwan. So these trade and investment talks would have all the hallmarks of a 21st century agreement, a la Biden. They're supposed to result in an initiative instead. The list of areas to be covered by the new trade agreement include trade facilitation, regulatory practices, anti-corruption standards, and enhancing trade between small and medium enterprises. All things we know and love and our listeners do as well. But China is not happy. So they've put out some words about why this is not a good idea. What do you think about this, Rob? Yeah, I think it's it's really it's interesting because we can't have treaties with Taiwan. So we have some sort of a framework agreement. We can't negotiate with Taiwan. So there's something called, you know, these different kind of institutes or other non-government actors who are negotiating these things. It's a major trading partner, but we can't call it such. So it ends up being kind of an interesting agreement. Everybody knows it's an agreement. Everybody knows what we're doing. And of course, China's not happy about that. It's another way to stick the thumb in the eye. But the other interesting thing, is, as, as you said, is the U.S. is not negotiating trade agreements anymore. We're not negotiating. We're not giving people market access. We're not giving people investment access anymore like we used to. That used to be the key lever. Now we're trying to have framework agreements where we talk about ecosystem, standards, everything but market access. We're not going to reduce tariffs. We're not going to make it easier to invest. So I think it's an interesting case because these are relatively rare now, but this is a kind of Biden-style trade agreement. And Taiwan's actually a really important trading partner, as you said. So let's watch what happens. I guess it's primarily political. And it also goes along with the Indo-Pacific framework, which we talked mm. about. I also don't think it's a coincidence that all of these Taiwan-related news items are hitting our feeds all at the same time. I don't know I can imagine this is not going to help geopolitical tensions to turn a, to use a phrase that we've often used on this show. But yeah, it's sort of speaking out both sides of your mouth, if you will. I think some listeners will wonder, well, if not a trading partner, how can we sign any kind of agreement with them? And aren't they part of China? It gets really complicated. And all of these geopolitical tensions are resulting in the name of a trade deal. A trade deal and many other things. So it's not the only thing. We sell weapons. We do other things with other countries. So I think this is just an extension of that. And why are we having it now? You're right. I mean, it's a geopolitical moment when we want to talk about these things. Mm. And it's a chance for the Biden trade policy to reinforce the kinds of things it wants to talk about, which is not market access, but it's things like you know cooperation on technology, collaboration on in innovation. And it's also trying to reinforce 
the segmentation of markets. So we don't want to trade more with China. We want to rather reinforce our relationship with places like Taiwan so that we don't you know, continue trading with China. We'll talk a little bit later about, of course, we still are, hugely. But all of these agreements have a kind of stick your thumb in the eye of China, fragment markets, compete with China, and try to push people's trade relationships toward us. So if we're building on that point, there's an article recently in the Wall Street Journal talking about how tariffs might not have had the effect that our boy Adani thought they would. So experts have told us that unplugging from China would be difficult and most likely impossible. Probably should have listened to them. One thing they didn't expect though were the effects of the pandemic and what higher U.S. tariffs would do to increase China's role in global manufacturing. So it seems that China's share of global goods has actually increased over the past couple of years to 15% by the end of 2021, up from 13%. And this is according to the U.N. Conference on Trade and Development, a place we know a little bit about. So the tariffs had an unforeseen effect. Do you think this was... It was probably not planned. No, absolutely. I think we knew that everybody talked about nearshoring, friendshoring, that there would be diversion from China because of the tariffs. And what we saw was that didn't really happen. The cost was paid by U.S. consumers. But also we saw there was some trade distortion, but the pandemic actually reinforced China's position because it was so strong, even though they had lockdowns, even though they had zero COVID policies. They were the only ones who could respond to the huge increases and the huge swings in demand. So they've ended up being as strong or stronger than they were before the pandemic and before the tariffs. And it's a little bit what we could have predicted. So we're not winning. Well, trade wars are easy to win. I think that's something we do need to repeat. That's what I heard. Yeah. So we're winning. I think we'll hear a lot more of that when Donald Trump decides to run again. Yeah, I think. Or when he's not getting used by the FBI. There'll be a big, beautiful wall in front of China. Oh, wait, they already have a wall. (laughs) Hold on. (laughs) I did not see that one coming. Yes. (laughs) Anyway, on the flip side, that's that's an interesting report. It shows how there are unintended consequences, maybe intended, I don't know, to things like tariffs, which many people did warn us about, but we're not listened to. On the flip side of that, an interesting report which came out recently, and this is just a report, so it hasn't been verified or confirmed by Apple, is that Apple has plans to begin manufacturing the iPhone 14 in India around two months after the initial release out of China. So they've been working with suppliers to ramp up manufacturing in India and shorten the time lag in production between the new iPhone for previous launches. Now, the twist here is that this comes as a result of geopolitical tension. So Apple has made most of their iPhones in China over the past decade or two, and it's seeking alternatives as the Xi Jinping administration is sort of clashing with the U.S. government and it's imposing lockdowns across the country, which have hurt business on top of these geopolitical tensions, and they've disrupted the economic activity, etc. So this Wall Street Journal article is not mutually exclusive of this one. In my opinion, it's the result of a couple of years after tariffs have taken effect, we're seeing the results. But I think the most recent one can be seen as a combination of COVID lockdowns and geopolitical tensions in the region and elsewhere. So it's really, again, goes back to that point where in many cases, economists, trade people, politicians, they assume that the last 30 years was going to be how the rest of history, the rest of time actually panned out. They took a lot of things for granted that geopolitical tensions were a thing of the past, that we would not block trade routes because Nancy Pelosi flew somewhere. But we're seeing very much the opposite. I don't know how you feel about that. I mean, I think you're right in the sense that the big number is China is getting stronger in manufacturing. 
but there are many individual things that might indicate that there's some trade diversion happening. And we know, we talked about the separation of different trade systems. So the Taiwan agreement is one of those where the U.S. and China are actively, in a way, trying to reinforce a movement away from U.S.-China trade, away from China's integration with the West, in quotes. So maybe what you're saying is this is kind of a leading indicator. Of course, I read a long article about the fact that Apple cannot delink with China. Mm. It's too wrapped up. It's too important because China is not just an assembly area. China is also doing many things for them. Yes, it's designed in California. There's so much that China is doing that's so integrated with Apple mm. that they can't leave. Maybe they'll find a few ways to do it a little bit differently in India. But I think it's still marginal. So if you ask me, great, there will be a few things like this. U.S. is just, we know last time we talked about U.S. subsidies to chip making, for instance, in the U.S. Fine. There Fritos will be. is a big beneficiary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Fritos, actually, my personal favorite. I hope they get heavily subsidized. But I don't think it's going to change the world market for computer trips. There's still going to be a huge sucking sound towards Taiwan, China, and Korea. You sound anti-American, but that's neither here nor there. Anyway. I think America's great, but I wouldn't recommend it. You wouldn't make it great again? <laughs> <laughs> it's real great, as, anyway, as we like we to say. we did not mean that. My MAGA friends and listeners, of which I'm pretty sure there are many hate listening to this right now. I mean, now. what I would say is what's very important for listeners to know is if they want to take a word and make it American, put the word real in front of it. So if you say, hey, this is tasty, you say, this is real tasty. You know, I used to be on that train a lot but now with time spending living in in switzerland for, for these many years i've realized that europeans do it just as bad if not worse you know what i heard the other day i heard that really grinds my gears what big lol <laughs> you know what that is for listeners that's big lol so yeah. in, in geneva at least the french-speaking part they say big lol if something is really funny yeah they but want to fundamentally it just sounds cooler they took le weekend as well it sounds cooler. No, just because you say I mean, it not when you not, not when you say it, but when they say <laughs> it. Yeah, it does. It sounds fantastic. Anyway, I'm Team America on this one. Anyway, tell me something good. Let's talk about inflation. There's some good news there, right? Well, we said a couple of weeks ago that the rising commodity prices capped out and they're coming down all across the board. So that the catastrophe, the end of the world coming with massive inflation, we haven't seen it. However, Unfortunately, this is the not good, so good part of this. Uh, these, <laughs> yes, folks, there is a downside. Debbie Downer is what you are. These price declines have not given as much relief as you'd expect to countries who are, for instance, dependent on imported food because, first of all, it takes a long time for them to reach many of the markets that we're talking about, maybe 10 to 12 months, according to, to analysts. And second, that in many cases, the currencies of these countries have weakened so much against the dollar, the dollar is so much stronger, that these commodities, which are denominated in dollars, look so much more expensive to them. So anything in terms of a price drop is massively balanced by the rise of the dollar, mm. which makes it more expensive in local currency. So one of the articles I'm reading talks about prices for food going up in, in Lebanon by 300%. Iran by 87%, Turkey by 95%, and so on. So these are incredibly disruptive. If we were thinking, well, there's going to be endlessly rising prices, no, there isn't, fine. But there's many other factors that are keeping this in a crisis situation. And um, as we've said before, the effects are going to be intensified because people are not using fertilizer as much as they would. For instance, where we work in East and Southern Africa, a lot of people are using fertilizers on things like corn, wheat. They have a tendency to do that. Now it's too expensive. They use less and 
potentially their production is going to be lower. So we really have to see what these second order effects are going to be. Is there any light at the end of the tunnel? How do we see this? How do we see countries coming out of this? Well, I think the downward pressure on prices. I knew that was coming back. (laughs) Will filter filter down. The godfather, just when I thought I was out, they (laughs) pulled me back in. That will filter down. That will be an effect. I think we'll see also mitigating effects of other things. We'll see a lot of these things, the strength of the dollar and so on, also mitigated, also reduced. So we just have to have time for the market to go back into equilibrium. I guess the problem we see, though, in food markets, for instance, is that there's many reinforcing issues. So there's not just Ukraine. There's not just uh, supply chain issues. There's not just issues of climate in one market. So there's many of these that are mutually reinforcing. So to answer your question, the kind of spikes we saw because of Ukraine are definitely going to go away and definitely going to filter down to the right place. And maybe the pressure on government budgets in these countries will go down, yes. But uh, some of these mutually reinforcing things, we don't really know Mm. uh, over the long term what's going to happen. Incidentally, there was a really interesting article which talked about the fact that some of our fears about global trade, especially global trade in food, were because the Russians stopped providing trade data Mm. for a few months. Or they hacked it. (laughs) (laughs) They hacked our wheat. So... In fact, maybe trade never really, some of the effects that we feared or even thought we saw were actually just because of gaps in data. So Mm. for those of us who sit playing with trade data all day. You know who you are. (laughs) This is fascinating. I'm thrilled. This is my thrilled (laughs) face. Yes, exactly. So listeners, you don't need to see my face to know that I'm thrilled. Uh, Yeah. I'm trying to think what the the little yellow head is for that. Actually, I'm glad you you, you took off on a tangent because I'm still digesting the, uh, the dominoes that you made me order. Right before we started recording. This. Hey, you had to put red onions on there. That's I, not I something know. I would ever eat on Domino's. Oh, it looked like the most sterile thing I could order from there without my intestines exploding, but I was wrong. Dmitry Grozobinski is a negotiations and trade policy expert who serves as the lead trainer of Explain Trade, the erudite version of trade planning. He's also the executive director of the Geneva Trade Platform at the Graduate Institute's Center for Trade and Economic Integration and visiting professor at the University of Strathclyde's School of Law. Prior to launching ExplainTrade.com, Dimitri served as an Australian diplomat and trade negotiator at the World Trade Organization and beyond. Your old job. He has negotiated complex agreements in Geneva at WTO and UN ministerial conferences in Kenya and as part of the MH17 task force in Kiev, Ukraine. Dimitri lives in Geneva, Switzerland, holds a BA in political science from the University of Melbourne and a Master's of Diplomacy and Trade from the Graduate School of Business at Monash University. I know I did not make that up. Monash. You can find him on Twitter where he tweets at Dimitri Opines. So, Dimitri, thanks for joining us on the podcast. We're delighted to have you on. As this marks the second anniversary of the podcast, we have to start with a question which nobody saw coming, and that is tell us a little bit about yourself <laughs> and how did you end up in Geneva? Truly breaking new ground in hosting guides. <laughs> uh, so, I. Initially came to Geneva for the Australian government. I was posted to the Australian mission to the World Trade Organization, covering all sorts of things as you do, development, trade facilitation, our investments in aid for trade organizations, all that kind of fun stuff. I was here for about three years and decided that I loved it and wanted to stay. Did a stint at a think tank and then launched my own consultancy that kind of does trade negotiation, trading for all sorts of governments and private sector. And then got hired to be the executive director of the Geneva Trade Platform here at the Graduate Institute. And that kind of brings us up to this morning. <laughs> so what are you doing tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, <laughs> okay, so 
during our discussions, we've we've kind of seen a theme coming along, especially the last couple of months, and we've seen the discussions around trade shift ever so slightly over the last period of few years, at least. How have you seen that since you first entered the trade space? How have you seen that changing positively or negatively? So I think the attitude and the perception has changed quite a bit. As I said, I really arrived in Geneva in 2014, and the sense then was this was five years after the 2008-2009 negotiations had fallen over, and there was this strong sense at the same time that trade was kind of running itself fine, but that the WTO wasn't likely to produce massively exciting new outcomes. It wasn't in a massive crisis. It had done some things through the trade facilitation agreement, but none of those were necessarily galvanizing massive amounts of businesses. Ministers weren't calling and shaking officials, demanding that they be given updates on the WTO. So there was a sense that it was boring and unlikely to kind of revolutionize your world, but kind of working well. People treated it like the sewer system while it's functioning. And then in 2016, that sewer system started exploding onto the surface somewhat through the trade wars between the US and China, and then Brexit, and then tensions over supply chains. And all of these things happened at once. And suddenly the narrative became, maybe the system isn't working so well, but also the WO is not going to deliver anything to fix it. And that held on for, for about four years. And now we've kind of arrived at this point where the, the trade is not working as well as people would like, but the WTO and the trading system does seem capable of delivering some outcomes on that, provided expectations are realistic and provided other conversations are happening elsewhere. So there's a renewed interest in trade from all quarters that wasn't there before, though in some ways it is kind of the dog that caught the car. Experts spent so many years being like, trade is important, pay attention to trade. And then pundits and politicians started paying attention to trade. So in the, in the middle of all that, COVID came, and that was a bit the inspiration for us putting the podcast together. So we asked everybody at that time, did the pandemic change your view on things? So you put it as part of a four-year kind of stretch. Did it change anything? Because even now, the results that came out of MC12 were kind of post-COVID, some of them related to partially COVID issues like the vaccine waiver and so on. So did COVID change your view of this or was it just one more kind of brick in the wall? You know, honestly, it was a little bit brick in the wall-esque in the sense that the way I look at how trade performed during COVID was on the one hand, obviously it was critically important. We got personal protective equipment to places where it was needed. We spread the vaccine around faster than any country could do on its own. So trade's importance was confirmed. At the same time, we really did see the limits of the trade rules in the sense that when governments had to choose between what they saw as vital measures to protect their own people, so things like export restrictions and the trade rules, they generally didn't let the trade rules slow them down too much in taking those steps. And I think I had always suspected that to be the case. I didn't think there were too many governments that would put allegiance and fidelity to trade law above their own national interest on matters that vital as they saw it. And so what played out was, I think in some ways, what I had expected to happen, but I was almost pleasantly surprised that it wasn't as universal as I feared it would be. And it seems to have sprung back a bit. So it could be worse. It could be worse. I'm getting that printed on t-shirts <laughs> and if I could afford skywriting in Geneva and 
that wasn't probably illegal under 37 cool. municipal codes. <laughs> I, w- I would certainly write that over the center of pod 24-7. That's the tagline. Or, or, or as Rob says, this doing it on this podcast is good enough. Good enough. Yeah, good enough. Good enough. <laughs> going to put government work. Yeah, <laughs> so uh, we've heard from many guests about the difficulties that the multilateral system is facing and managing global issues, so on and so forth. And of course, we've heard these predictions on the end of globalization, which we love. And now, most recently, we have this fallout from the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the intensification of China and U.S., a number of other geopolitical issues that are, all seem to be going on at the same time, and it's putting pressure on the multilateral system. Though MC12 gave us some hope, and you run the Geneva Trade Platform, which is a program in some ways focused on making those things work better, do you see MC12 as a cause for hope despite all of these negative externalities? So yes and no. I think it is a sign of hope in that the multilateral system can still do things sometimes, even in the face of massively contested geopolitical spaces, right? On the other hand, I do think that we need to have realistic expectations for these organizations. You know, I'm Ukrainian myself. I see other Ukrainians all the time saying, well, the UN system is useless because it can't stop the invasion of the country. And I always do try to remind people, as globalist, neoliberal as it sounds, that these institutions were never designed to prevent a massive global power from doing what it's really chosen to do. No system of international law could ever do that. All it can do is provide dialogue spaces, provide steam release valves, and provide additional reasons to consider in not doing something. So I think MC12 showed us that it is still possible to do some things, even while everyone is in a state of very heightened agitation and condemnation of one another. But I think those whose expectations of the multilateral system, whether it's the WTO or what's the WTO resolving US-China tensions, or the UN resolving Russia and Ukraine or Russia and NATO, however you want to picture that, those I think were never realistic. And I'm not surprised the multilateral system has failed that test. If you had been there and negotiating and the karaoke thing had come up, we understand during the ministerial there was a karaoke, would you have taken the mic and what would you have sung? Well, you know, Geneva is the home of a lot of the world's war crimes legislation. And therefore, my taking the mic would be a little bit on the nose in terms of the simultaneously torturing an entire room full of people. That seems a little bit on the nose in the home of the Geneva Convention. Actually, that might have worked. You could have just said, I'm going to keep singing until we come to an agreement. And that would have been the fastest agreement. Uh, Hey, that does feel like how some international agreements got done. Uh, At UNCTAD 14, the Argentinian ambassador blasted Desposito at about 40,000 decibels <laughs> through the microphone at 4 a.m. on like day three. Wake up a room full of people. Yeah. That sounds like my wedding. Yeah. Were people also asleep at your wedding? <laughs> but I guess we, so we know we've got global problems. So climate is one of them, but there's many, many of them. And we need some sort of global solution. We've got to find ways that we don't just have spaces for dialogue. We actually have people working together somehow to figure them out. And WTO is one of those spaces. And as you said, we've got maybe some hope from this recent ministerial. 
Do you have ideas for how we make these spaces more effective? Is it less consensus? Is it G20? Is it OECD? Because you've kind of been in the middle of this for a while. What would be your thinking there? First of all, I think the answer is a little bit of all of those things. We are never going to get the WTO to a point where it is not seeking new rules by consensus, and that's not a bad thing. At the same time, an organization like the WTO, which relies on consensus, is never going to be able to move fast enough on the big questions, because really it's not the WTO that establishes a new global rule. The causality is the opposite. Generally, major players shift their thinking on various policy areas. And then once they've all collectively shifted their thinking, they might come to the WTO and hash out a legally binding agreement to lock in that status quo and prevent regression. So in terms of rulemaking, that will continue. But I think the Things like the climate crisis are simply too urgent to be left exclusively to that. So we often ask this as well, because we've got listeners who are at all different phases of their career, but some are just starting or just thinking whether to do trade or do more trade. What do you tell people who are thinking of entering this space? What do you advise them? What would you tell them not to do? It. (laughs) I make a very comfortable living through trade, so I'm hardly in a position to tell others not to do it. So the first thing is be really clear on what kind of trades you want to do. The practicalities of trade actually moving things across borders is going to be a massive growth industry coming as, for example, environmental regulations, circular economy regulations, all make the art of getting a box or a service from country A to country B via countries D, E, and F, all the more complicated. And so that's a massive growth industry. It's not sexy trade negotiation if you find that sexy. And let me tell you, as someone who was single when they arrived in Geneva, people don't. Uh, So that's going to be a growth industry, and it's often underseen because it's not on the cutting edge. If you want to get into policy, biggest advice is learn to write and to communicate effectively, because that's the number one in-demand skill of any policy think tank, any government agency. If you can take a vast amount of information, pick out the three important parts and write them in a way that your audience engages with, or talk about them in a podcast, find the right questions to ask in the podcast, like you gentlemen are doing. That's a hugely in-demand skill that's going to be, frankly, a lot more valuable to an employer at the start of your career than the knowledge you will have gained at uni or wherever, which you'll be at the start of your career. It's likely to blow anyone's mind, but judgment and ability to truncate will be hugely important. So I think what Dimitri is saying, Rob, is you have a future in, in the trade space. I'm just hanging on. I'm just hanging on because as we've talked about with many guests, middle management is going to be automated within the next few years. And I'm not sure I've got skills to do anything else. You're actually a hologram right now. I'm talking to a hologram. I used to be good at ping pong. I don't a machine will ever be able to cause as many problems as I do. <laughs> exactly. I don't think AI is going to get there. It's a how value could, added. How could an AI really be a middle manager? So, uh, Dimitri, I think that'll take us to the expat focus one, which is a bit more lighthearted. First question, Dimitri, what's it like being from New Zealand? And what have you learned about your home country while living abroad that you didn't realize before? Uh, I'm actually from a different state of Australia. I'm actually from Victoria. I grew up in Victoria. Okay. So I can see why you'd make the mistake. It's hard to keep Australian territories clear in your head. <laughs> I mean, this is gonna this is gonna sound like an advert for Australia. I did the MH17 response for Australia very shortly after I first arrived here. And I got to see the Department of Foreign Affairs dealing with a huge kind of crisis in a country that they'd never really been active before. And that was kind of the department and my colleagues putting their absolute best foot forward. 
And it's so easy to be cynical about your fellow bureaucrats, about yourself, about what you do. So much of what we did as diplomats was like, oh, you're writing reports no one reads, or you go into committees that no one cares about. Actually seeing what Australians are capable of and what the Australian government as a system is capable of delivering when it's backs up against the wall and when it's thrust into a crisis was this kind of real moment of patriotism when Australia is normally much more relaxed about that kind of thing. So that was really nice to find out. And then also to discover that we are absolutely everywhere. Like you can't throw a rock in this town without hitting three Australians and a Kiwi. So that was also a revelation. Well, uh, that thing that was an A plus answer, I would have settled for uh, something, something fosters, but then you get (laughs) extra brownie points for that. As you can tell, we're pretty smart. So we know a lot of things. We know, for instance, that Australia, whatever it is out there, is uh, known for a lot of weird animals, even weird political animals. Mm. So what's your favorite and why? So my favorite apolitical animal in my heart, he's like a crotchety left-wing voter. There is a creature called a wombat, which can grow up to about like a meter and a half. It's a marsupial, but it looks like a, a bear on all four paws. And these things are incredible. They can outrun Usain Bolt. Their butt is an armored plate of bone that can take the axle off a truck if it hits it, right? And they poop cubes that they form into pyramids to mark their territory. These things are amazing. You, you just made that up. You just made that up. I swear to God, Google all of those things. <laughs> well, because the first thing I'm going to Google is do one that's poop cubes. Poop cubes. That will autocomplete. If you get the do one, it'll have autocompleted it for you. Cubes. I wonder if you can learn to do that. Oh, you're surprising me, Dimitri. I was expecting like a, a koala bear or something like that. You went straight to the wombat. Or a former prime minister. Yeah. <laughs> so I know you've, cho- you've kind of chosen Geneva, but many of us have for many reasons. But let me ask you this question. Geneva is boring. Please discuss. Or better yet, on a scale of zero to Crocodile Dundee, how exciting is Geneva? I- I'm not sure where it places on the Crocodile Dundee scale because that's a shifting slider. So first of all, I think Geneva is incredibly boring if you do not know anyone and you are not plugged into the scene here. If you arrive, and especially you don't arrive as a diplomat or inside a big IO, if you came here and you took a job doing something in a small organization where maybe no one's in like your peer group, I can imagine this place would be incredibly isolating because there's a huge amount that goes on here that unless somebody literally takes you or forwards it to you, it's been announced on some semi-underground WhatsApp group in German. And so you, you will just never know about it. I do get a little bit antsy when people from big cities are like, Geneva's boring. There's no restaurants and bars here. Because I'm always like, how many bars did you honestly go to in New York in the average like month? You went to the same freaking, friends went to the same freaking cafe every day. The How I Met Your Mother guys were in one bar, Flanagan's or whatever, every freaking night for seven seasons. I'm like, I go to the same number of bars you do. Okay, I chose them from 1,000 rather than 30,000. Get over yourselves. You're not really cosmopolitan. You're a creature of habit like the rest of us. Go and raise a pint. Go and have a glass of wine by the lake. And if you don't like it, you can be in London in like 45 minutes. Yeah, Rob, stop complaining. It's one of those things, what spot Geneva? You can get out fast. Hey, we hear that a lot. Try living in Canberra, buddy. Like, <laughs> who? All of the charm and amenities of Geneva, but Melbourne's seven and a half hours drive away. Yeah, I've been there. In Canberra? Been in Canberra. Yeah. That's like a Pickwick's pub quiz. What is the capital of Australia? If there's one thing this podcast is, it's scientific. It's extremely rigorous. So we're going to have to ask you the same question that we've asked our 37 other guests. 
or 30. You can count. Some, there were doubles, so more than 30 <laughs> guests, which was, it's about the national food, obviously, of Geneva, which is kebab. So what is your favorite kebab place in Geneva? Obviously, it's Alamir. Would be a good answer. So I have to confess, I've been eating parfum on sheer momentum for the past seven years. Good answer. Because especially when I started, I've been a thousand restaurants opened up in Geneva in the last three years. There's been like four bars opened on my street alone. It's crazy. But when you arrived, parfum was what was open late and that was it. And every negotiator who comes through for two or three days from capital knows parfum. So you just eat parfum. I have never tried Elamir. I've never heard any bad things. It's simply, do I want a kebab? It is late. I will get parfum because I know I'll be happy. And a lot of Geneva dining, you got to say, you find the place that will get you the food that you like the way you like it. And you're like, if my main is going to cost me 47 francs and I know I can get a good one from here, why would I venture beyond? Th this is your creature of habit uh, hypothesis makes oh. sense because you, everybody's used to going to Parfum de Beirut, but they don't know that El Amir is just literally next door. But I'm saying almost everybody, without maybe knowing it, since they're both yellow and the two restaurants are contiguous, <laughs> many among us, and you don't have to raise your hands here, have gone to El Amir without knowing it. <laughs> I thought it was the same door, same restaurant, different door. So Dimitri, I think that about does it for this interview. Thanks for coming on. Let us know before we go, where can people find you if they want to find your work? I mean, finding my work would be a challenge. I never really seem to do much. But generally speaking, you can find me on Twitter at Dimitri Opines, which felt less cringy when I came up with it. Or you can find us at GenevaTradePlatform.org. Thanks very much. Thanks again. Thanks so much, guys. Hey, Rob, why is your phone broken again? Well, it's been real hot out, Artie, as you know, and these drought conditions mean it slipped out of my hand and broke. Another expensive thing for me to fix. Well, Rob, you wouldn't have had this problem if you used Case Folklore. Case Folklore? What's that? Good thing you asked, Rob. Case Folklore offers customizable phone cases, which come in an assortment of designs and colors. You can find out more by checking out their Instagram page at Case Folklore or using the promo code SPLAINING at checkout. That brings us to This Week in Local News. You wouldn't believe this was true unless you lived in Geneva or really anywhere else. So I think we're going to start not from Geneva, but from Manchester, a very nice city in England. Love it. They've got a couple of football uh, programs up there. I think there's a really good situation here driven by foreign direct investment. Elon Musk is considering buying Manchester United. So I just want to check in with you, Artie. That's a really good idea, right? It's not a good idea. And one, you never lead a discussion about football clubs in Manchester with Manchester City. Okay, you don't do that. Okay, did I? At least it? not in this studio, okay? <laughs> so like most things in life, Elon Musk is not serious about buying Manchester United. They are for sale, though, because their current owners are not really that great, to put it lightly. But he did tweet about it. Like he tweeted about buying Twitter, and he pulled out of this deal like he pulled out of the Twitter deal, but not other things. <laughs> <laughs> but that means they could they could get a billion bucks out of it, right? Apparently, it should be worth around like four or five to six billion. Oh, nice. On the plus side, Here's not, the plus only, side. not only is Elon pulled out of yeah. that deal yes. via tweet, of course. Yes. He yeah. said, I was just joking, although I liked Manchester United. It's actually a good week because we just beat Liverpool when this podcast airs. It was just been a couple of days ago. When you say we, you mean? I meant Manchester United just beat Liverpool. Okay. And so they're on a high from that. And it seems that Britain's richest man wants to buy them. He also owns, funnily enough, FC Lausanne here in Switzerland. <laughs> it's actually on the same part. Yeah. yeah. It, no, no, it's really a true story. The owner okay. of Ineos, the chemical company, wants to buy Manchester United. 
Okay. And so I'm excited because it's not Elon Musk mainly. Because it's not Elon Musk. Yeah. And it's it's local because there's some connection there to Switzerland, even though it's not Geneva. And it's those hucksters up in Lausanne. Okay. Which we don't like. And do you think this could reverse the situation with Manchester United sucking? No. No, no. On that front. Yes, actually it could. What am I talking about? Yes, yes, it could. As <laughs> no. long as Elon doesn't buy it and as long as the current owners don't stay there, I think anything is better. Okay. Could be worse, though. Sure. Yeah. Could be okay. worse. They're going to stop sucking. They okay, really- So in other news, I wanted to confirm that because we were wondering a little bit about this last week, there's a bit of this, you know, there's on one side, maybe they're smart, maybe tech sector investors are actually reacting to the fact that the market is going to poop, or maybe they're actually losing their minds. So which side is it going to be? I think a little bit of everything. I think we're into losing their to, minds. To quote Jimmy, Dimitri, it's a little bit of everything. I think we're losing. Remember, we talked about the one SoftBank losing $23 billion in one quarter mm-hmm. on tech investments. Mm-hmm. We now have a Silicon Valley investment bank that has decided to invest in a new startup by Adam Newman, the guy who started WeWork. You remember these are the guys you that- You mean Jared Leto. <laughs> these are the guys that rent space and then rent it back to you for less- I thought flow was something about urinal cake. Okay. The new one's called flow. And I'm going to tell you what it does. It's community-driven, experience-centric service with the latest technology in a way that has never been done before to create a system where renters receive the benefits of owners. I think you can see right there, we're talking about a biggie. This is going to be massively profitable. So this is actually replacing the UN word of the day because this is sort of calling <laughs> it, doing what you were doing before, yes. but calling it a different name. It's talking about renting apartments, not office space. So this is like we work. It's a different. It's like apartments. Vanilla Ice saying that he did not steal the song from Freddie Mercury <laughs> and David Bowie. And it's something about I think it's ping pong tables. I think it has to do with grocery delivery service and actually burning through stacks of cash every second. If Jared Leto is involved, I think I'm in though. I think we got to be in. I'm in. I would buy Get in some. early. Get in. What could go wrong? <laughs> so, folks, if you thought WeWork was great, try Flow. I'm convinced that they've just designed new, more efficient ways to make a toilet seat. Toilet bowl. Flow? Actually, that's flow. not a bad idea. Yeah. That market probably needs to be A good name for like a retirement home. <laughs> <laughs> Cut. So that's all we have for today on the local news, neither of which was in Geneva. We'll be back at you with stories of trees. Or not. In next Depending episode. on how things go. <laughs> well, folks, that about wraps up episode 37, brought to you by former U.S. Treasury Secretary Robert Rubin, iPhones not made in China, and of course, Nancy Pelosi's Asian holiday. Also, Undersecretary of State Jamie Rubin. We also want to thank our guest, Dmitry Gruzovinsky, once again for joining us, as well as executive producer and our White House correspondent, Michelle Opin and Valentina Saponara, for helping him produce this episode. Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so already. Make sure you catch our next episode coming out very, very soon. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or really anywhere you get your podcast. Anywhere? Anywhere, Rob. Don't forget to leave us a review, as I said before, on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We read all of them. Please, please, please be gentle. Five stars. <laughs> like an Uber driver. You can also follow us on Twitter at Tradesplaining or on Instagram at trade.splaining. Or email us your questions, comments to us the old-fashioned way at trade.splaining at gmail.com. Once again, that's trade.splaining at gmail.com. And remember, folks, listen listen responsibly. Or don't, just listen.